It's an upside-down weather world this week. Snow in the desert, rain on the frozen tundra, and the worst wildfires ever down under. Even the birds seem confused. A new Audubon study says the real snowbirds are moving, get this, north. We'll ask one bird watcher how far the birds are going. And are you ready for the next El Nino watch? That's right. NOAA will now issue watches and advisories for El Nino Southern Oscillation conditions in the tropical Pacific Ocean. This may be climate news you can use. Fire and rain today as jet streaming goes to the birds from Minnesota Public Radio. Welcome to Jet Streaming, everybody. Jet Streaming is our weekly look at all things weather and climate. I'm Minnesota Public Radio Chief Meteorologist Paul Hutner, University of Minnesota Climate Specialist Dr. Mark Seeley, and fellow NPR and career National Weather Service Meteorologist Craig Edwards are riding the jet stream today as well. Hi, guys. Glad to be with you, Paul. Well, we got a lot of things going on in the last week or so here in the upper Midwest and across the nation and the world. It is a busy weather week. You are so right, Craig. The most recent breaking weather news comes from Oklahoma and the Southern Plains. Tornadoes touching down in the northern Oklahoma City suburb of Edmond. In fact, three tornadoes in Oklahoma, one in Pawnee, one in Long Grove, one in Ringgold, Texas, that uh, did cause two fatalities, 25 injuries one in Missouri as well. Mark, uh, this kind of harkens back to last year. Even though we know tornadoes can occur in the south in February, it's definitely on the early end of the season again, isn't it? It certainly is, but harkening back to last year, as you said, 147 tornadoes in the month of February last year, Paul. So who knows, maybe the rest of the month is going to be an active one in terms of severe weather. Thankfully, uh, despite the headlines generated, I think those at the Storm Prediction Center did a pretty good job yesterday in terms of watches and warnings. They did. They had that moderate risk out in advance, and they were definitely ahead of this situation as it developed. Today, the moderate risk for parts of Ohio and Kentucky, and I'm looking at new tornado watches there right through this afternoon and this evening. There's a fire down under this week after record-breaking heat firestorms ravaged Australia's southern state of Victoria this week. Hundreds of homes have been destroyed, and the death toll is likely over 200. Arsonists may have started some of these blazes. The town of Marysville, that's about 62 miles northeast of Melbourne, was nearly wiped out over the weekend. Resident Elaine Postlethwaite told the Australian Broadcasting Corporation that she left her husband behind when he refused to leave their home. People have been just so kind, and I'm presently with my sister Pat. I can't think of the future. I don't know what future there is. I, I still can't believe I no longer have a house and all the beautiful things I had in it. And my dog, I don't know what happened to him. That report, courtesy of the BBC, uh, Craig Edwards, uh, a devastating situation down there. Last week we were talking about the heat, and as uh, often the case, it's followed by fires. Yeah, what I was hearing, Paul, is these flames and these embers were just jumping across the sky and literally moving uh, hundreds of yards uh, upstream. So you had these fires that you thought were well uh, away from you, and then all of a sudden you got a spark and you got an ignition and you got a fire on your hands. So very fast-moving firestorms there in uh, portions of Australia. Well, from fire to ice, as many as 200 people had to be rescued when an ice flow broke away from shore on Lake Erie near Cleveland last weekend. 
One person died after falling into Lake Erie. The irony is that 50-degree weather drew the people out onto the frozen lake. And, Craig, I'm curious from you again on this one as a National Weather Service guy who gets a lot of these phone calls. Is there a lesson there with this kind of situation? Well, it looked like too much of a good thing. I think the word got out about the fishing out there. And I'm thinking that the last time I checked, ice fishermen still have to drill holes in the ice. So there was a community of 200 people that were out there, and they actually were putting a plank across a crack in the ice to maneuver themselves onto this ice uh, area. And then eventually it cracked, and so they were ended up on an ice flow. And uh, 134 had to be rescued off of that ice flow. So uh, they had been warned that the ice was uh, had the potential of breaking up. So uh, you can't say uh, there wasn't an advisory out for those type of conditions. And I think some of them actually were ticketed in that situation, too. Unfortunately, one person uh, did die in that situation. Now, here in the states in the desert, this one is interesting. Light snow falling around Tucson, Arizona. Not that big of a deal. Just a trace recorded at Tucson International Airport. But as many as six inches fell in Oracle. That's about 4,500 foot level north of Tucson. And 16 inches fell at Summerhaven, which is at 9,100 feet on top of nearby Mount Lemmon. As that's happening, the same high-amplitude weather pattern brought a large rain event here in the upper Midwest, including all of Minnesota this week. A very warm system for February, you guys. Rainfall ranged from around a quarter of an inch here in the metro to half to three-quarters of an inch in the Red River Valley and as much as six to eight-tenths along the North Shore ridgeline around Finland and Lutzen. Mark, the remarkable thing about this storm was the way the warm air just overwhelmed the potential for an ice storm. It certainly did, Paul. In fact, the Weather Service kept adjusting the uh advisories for freezing precipitation further and further north because the uh, warm air advection was so overpowering. I might further add that for our western Great Lakes region, a rainfall, in fact any rainfall of over half an inch in the month of February is extremely rare. Most of our observers for the entire month of February might report anywhere from five-tenths to eight-tenths of precipitation. That's remarkable. And to see it all rain after the cold snap we've been through was sure eye-catching. And boy, did it do a number on our snow cover. Well, even after a cold winter so far, rain in northern Minnesota in February, as Mark tells us and reminds us, that it reminds us our climate has been changing. A new study by the Audubon Society says that our feathered friends are trying to tell us something. It seems many bird species are wintering much farther northward than they did 40 years ago. The biggest shift may be the purple finch, which now prefers winters in Milwaukee to Springfield, Missouri. That's a shift of over 400 miles. Is the purple finch the new canary in the coal mine of climate change? John Flicker is the president of the Audubon Society, and he joins us today from New York City. John, welcome to Jetstreaming. Good to be with you, Paul. So what changes are we seeing with these birds and their winter migration patterns? Well, we, we did a study from our annual Christmas bird count, which measures uh, where birds are at around Christmas time uh, over the last 40 years. And uh, we, we measured all birds across North America, 307 species, and found that well over half of them, 177 species, have moved significantly farther north and it's directly correlated to uh, warmer winters related to climate change. Uh, John, Mark Seeley, I, I, I wanted to follow up a little bit. Um, and by the way, thank you for letting me participate in that teleconference the other day. I thought it was very interesting. Um, framing this in a 40-year uh, time period, when you have a century's worth of data to call upon, 
Is it because it's been the last 40 years that we've seen the most change occur, occur, or have your scientists gone back and, for example, looked at these changes across an entire century? Well, the, the, the scientists that put together the, uh, the leading document on climate change, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, have been tracking the increase in uh, greenhouse gas emissions and correlating that to temperature changes over the last 40 or 50 years. So we took the last 40 years of data that we had available as being the most relevant uh, if we wanted to find a correlation to uh, climate change and to, and to greenhouse gas emissions and used uh, that, that uh, block of time first. And uh, what we showed was really quite dramatic. Uh, the, 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 the changes in the what we call the, the center of abundance for birds, where most of them are in the wintertime, has moved significantly north, and it tracked uh, uh, directly with uh, the ups and downs of, of winter temperature and the gradual increase in, in winter temperatures across the country. Yeah, this is Craig Edwards, and we had a uh, naturalist on last week talking about uh, the, the animals, uh, their instincts. Now, is this all based on what they recall from the previous year, that they migrate further north, or is this something that's going to become an aid to their uh, character of uh, migrating north? And is there... Give me uh, some uh, examples of both positive and negatives of this migration. Well, uh, birds do what they're supposed to do, which is find good habitat where they can eat and have the habitat they need to survive. Uh, and uh, they will tend to winter as far north into the cold as they can survive. So in warmer winters, they'll go further north, and in cooler winters, they won't go as far north. Uh, and the trend has been clear that uh, as they go move back and forth like that, uh, they will go as far north as they can, and that uh, farthest limit is extending uh, uh, considerably farther north. And for some birds, uh, that works fine if they've got habitat farther north that they can go to. For instance, uh, woodland species, uh, particularly in the east where there is an increasing amount of forest land, can go farther north, and they are, uh, many of them are doing fine. It's not, it's not harming them. Other species, however, uh, that can't go any farther north are in big trouble. For instance, tundra species like a snowy owl or an ivory gull or an American golden plover that depends on ice in the far north, uh, they're going the way of the polar bear. Uh, they've got no further north to go, and uh, they're, they're in big trouble. Um, other birds like uh, grassland birds where there's such, such a limited amount of grassland available and no more grassland farther north for them, they're not moving as much because they've got no place to go, and those species are in rapid decline. Uh, John, um, your, your Dr. Greg Butcher and then Dr. Terry Root from uh, Stanford University elaborated on this point a little bit in the uh, teleconference, but I'd like your take on it. They, they really emphasize the preservation of habitat, and uh, Dr. Root went on to say that the boreal forest serves as a refuge for many of these uh, bird species. Yet on the North American continent in the last decade or so, we've seen some uh, rather dramatic disturbances to the uh, boreal landscape. For example, up in uh, Alberta, Canada, they've taken out an enormous area of boreal forest to uh, develop the oil tar sands for, to meet energy needs. I'm just wondering, among those 177 species that they talked about, were some of those specifically affected by what's happened to the boreal forest in uh, Alberta? 
Um, we couldn't track that particular disturbance to a particular species with the data we had available. I would uh, project that it pro they probably were affected, but we couldn't come to that conclusion with this study. But the conclusion is very clear that we need large blocks of habitat that allow birds to move around as climate changes, and the boreal forest is one of those critical areas. There's a lot of it, but we've got to make sure we protect all of it, and uh, additional tar sands development up there would be devastating if that goes forward. It also points out the need for corridors. Uh, for instance, uh, the Mississippi River Corridor uh, is one of those critical pathways uh, that still has a, a tremendous amount of good habitat and is one of the largest migratory corridors for birds in the country. And it allows birds to move north and south uh, and adapt more easily to uh, climate change. John, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, this is a United States bird count, I trust. Uh, do you have counterparts in the world that are doing this? And if so, are you seeing similar patterns? Um, there is a, a, a count in, uh, in Great Britain uh, that is uh, somewhat similar to ours that's showing a similar pattern, although the migrations there uh, move off uh, the, uh, the British Isles very quickly. And there, is, uh, there are also some counts in this hemisphere in uh, South and Central America, and they just reinforce uh, what we're seeing here in the United States. Um, the evidence is overwhelming. We had a relatively cold winter compared to, to the last few winters here in the upper Midwest. Was there any particular species that was endangered by the cold weather of this winter season? Well, I can, I can think of one. Uh, the, the cold was across the entire northern tier. Um, uh, there was a pronounced example of, uh, with brown pelicans on the Pacific coast. Uh, they're traditionally along the southern Pacific coast, and with warmer temperatures, they've been moving north and became common up in Oregon and, and Washington State along the coast. Uh, and this year, they had a huge uh, snowfall and cold winter, and there was a huge die-off of uh, brown pelicans up there because they were up in that territory where they weren't used to it. And when, they, when the storm hit, uh, there was a big die-off. And we can expect to see more of that as uh, birds are, are changing their ranges, but the temperatures don't stay constant at a warmer temperature, there's ups and downs, and they'll get caught in, uh, in a bad winter when it happens. Say, John, one of the attributes of Audubon uh, that I admire the most, and I'm not alone in this, is your engagement and involvement of the citizen scientists as volunteers. I'm wondering, uh, can you tell us, for example, on the Christmas bird count, how many volunteer hours go into it? It just must be enormous. Well, we have over 2,000 locations across the country where we actually do counts every year, and the count goes on for two weeks around Christmas time, uh, and we have over 50,000 volunteers uh, that are engaged in those counts across the country, and each one of those uh, volunteers will put in a full day and usually quite a long day uh, out there, and uh, many of them participate in more than one count. Uh, I don't have an exact number of hours, but it's uh, many hundreds of thousands of hours. And without all that wonderful volunteer help, we couldn't possibly uh, get this done. Um, the, the, we, we have this report and we have this information available because citizen scientists got out and did something to help. And uh, the next step is for those same citizens to now take action to do something to solve the problem. Well, John, this is a fascinating study. It made big news this week, and we thank you very much uh, for migrating in to discuss what uh, birds are telling us about climate today. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
well, if birds of a feather are reacting to changes in climate, maybe people can too. This week, NOAA unveiled a new advisory system for the El Nino Southern Oscillation. NOAA will now issue El Nino and La Nina watches and advisories when conditions warrant in the tropical Pacific Ocean. Changes in ENSO conditions have wide-ranging and sometimes very predictable impacts in different parts of the world. This kind of long-lead watcher advisory is really a new concept, and we are very pleased to have NOAA's Deputy Director from the Climate Prediction Center, Mike Halford, here to discuss this new system. Mike, welcome to Jetstreaming. Thank you very much. Mike, this seems like a good idea to us who, who follow this day-to-day and season-to-season. How did the idea to start issuing ENSO watches evolve? Well, the, the whole idea behind the, the ENSO watch actually stemmed um, from some discussions that the World Meteorological Organization had probably going back about 10 years ago. And the thought was um, that, that the ability to forecast climate had improved enough where it became feasible to issue climate watches. Uh, and so an ENSO watch is basically a form of a climate watch, uh, with the idea being that that advanced notice would help um, various folks um, to uh, try some mitigation techniques. Uh, a classic example, and this was certainly long before um, we had these, this, this type of a system in place, was back um, with the very strong 1997-98 uh, El Nino that yes. certainly um, resulted in, in a lot of heavy rain and, and flooding in, in, in parts of California. I remember I, I was working here at the time, and, and we made a, a very concerted effort um, probably six months in advance of, of their rainy season to, to go out to the emergency planners in California and really to, to blanket the state and give them a heads up that, that they should take whatever preparatory uh, actions that they could to try and mitigate the results um, from this very heavy rain. And, and I think in, in, in retrospect, the thought was that it probably saved over a billion dollars to that state. Uh, Mike, Mark Seeley here. It's very nice to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on with us. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to follow up a, a little more broadly um, with with the uh, initialization of this service. Um, thinking beyond our own North American continent, there are many landscape areas that uh, are affected by uh, El Nino or La Nina, that is, these, these uh, oscillating behaviors. But if you put out a, an advisory or you put out a watch, uh, not all these countries, as I understand it at least, have the capacity to respond, or am I wrong in that? Do most now have the capacity to respond to such a watch? Well, I I think even at its minimalist standard, there are some things you can do. If you live in an area in the tropics, say, that typically becomes very dry with either El Nino or La Nina, uh, and you know six months in advance that you're going to be dealing with with very, very dry conditions, you can certainly do what you can to try and, and conserve that, that finite resource of water that you have. So I would think everybody can do something. Certainly the, the mitigation actions in, in the more developing nations would probably be more beneficial, but I, I would expect all countries should be able to, to react in some way. Now, this is Craig Edwardson uh, working for NOAA for uh, a couple of decades. I noticed that the climate is particularly hard to predict in regions of the country when there is a lack of El Nino. So we found that this winter, when the forecast came out for a very high confidence level of milder than normal temperatures on average for the winter season, 
in the upper Midwest. The outlook that came out in mid-November continued to call for that. Uh, would you say that the, the correlation is pretty good on predicting the weather in the continental United States during an El Nino and not so when it's a neutral or a La Nina? Well, El Nino certainly gives a more consistent and a predictable type of a winter. Uh, neutral is, is by far the trickiest. Uh, La Nina typically results in, in a lot of, of uh, variability throughout the winter, and we really have seen that. Uh, one thing, and, and again, the seasonal outlooks that we do are done up to a year in advance, so they get updated once a month. And I do know that when we started making forecasts for this winter back in the late summer, early, uh, late summer, early fall time period, they say August, September, October period, at that time we didn't anticipate La Nina um, redeveloping. And so we had higher confidence in it to be warmth up over the northern plains, up over Minnesota. As we got closer to the winter, and I guess our final update would have been in November, and we started to, to think, and I think probably in November we were still at best maybe 50-50 that we would see La Nina. We did back off on our confidence. The probabilities were lower, and we did still have that area in, in, in a better than one-third chance of it being above normal. So we did react somewhat. I, I guess if we had had more confidence that this La Nina would develop, and, and that that's something that we just really didn't see until probably December, we probably would have gone back with an unequal chance forecast in that area. Can I follow up with that, Paul? Go ahead, Craig. Sure. I'd like to ask that uh, you know we're we're basing these conditions, uh, these trends above or below normal, based on the current conditions or the current records that include a lot of cold winters in the late seventies. When we drop out those cold winters, when we do the next normals, which we're creating now, do you do you see it's going to be more difficult to predict above or below, even with a strong uh, El Nino? I, I don't think with the strong El Nino. In, in those cases, pretty much the country just gets flooded with, with marine air. Uh, we see very few. The, the, the jet stream becomes very zonal, so it basically is flowing west to east. Uh, the strong El Nino case will be the one case when I, I'd say we can confidently forecast above. But the other type of winters, the, the neutral or La Nina winters, um, will most likely become trickier to forecast. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Mike, I'm curious about the wording of these advisories and watches as you will begin uh, putting them out now. Uh, first of all, will you include expected seasonal weather changes as part of these watches? Uh, you know, our, our milder winters perhaps we're discussing in the Midwest in El Nino years and wetter winters in the Southwest. And and who do you expect to benefit primarily from that information? Okay, let me start with uh, the first part of the question, which was will we, uh, at, at the same time as we issue this watch or advisory, issue the expected impacts? The system itself, um, the alert system, uh, is actually being attached to other products that we already issue here at the Climate Prediction Center, most notably our, our monthly ENSO diagnostics discussion. So the actual issuance of a watch or an advisory won't directly list the impacts, but the discussion that that alert is attached to will list those expected impacts. So the answer is yes, but not it's it's not as a direct result of the the watch or the advisory. It's it's by virtue of the fact that it's included in a discussion that already includes that information. Got it. Uh, the second part, which is who should benefit from the outlooks, uh, really I'm going to say uh, anybody who uses climate information can benefit from these. Uh, if, if I'm in the agricultural sector, 
and and I know that I've got an El Nino coming, and that's going to result in in dry conditions or wet conditions. Uh, that's information I can take advantage of. If I'm in the uh, water resource condition, the same thing goes. Uh, even even the, the homeowner who plans on maybe planting their garden uh, might, if we if we expect to see El Nino in that air that favors dry for that region. Uh, they might change their their whatever they plan on putting into the garden for that particular season. Uh, Mike, uh, just to change direction uh, slightly, we read, and this has been some months ago, that the deployment of the NOAA fleet of research vessels, uh, some were going to spend considerable time in the southern hemisphere studying uh, in the coming year. And I'm just wondering, uh, from the standpoint of tackling this uh, El Nino southern oscillation, have you as a research community uh, benefited from uh, ocean vessel studies in terms of the oceans? Have they, in fact, had some impact on, say, tweaking or fine-tuning any of your models? I, I don't think that that data certainly goes into what we would term our initialization for the model. So the better starting point we have when we run the model, um, the theory should certainly be the better forecast we'll have. So with respect to that, it would certainly help our, our forecasts. Uh, to be honest, though, um, the models that we currently run to forecast El Nino or La Nina um, have a lot of problems with trying to forecast a transition. And we're aware of this. It doesn't help us any. But as I mentioned, heading into this particular winter, uh, a few of our, our models, including the one we run here at, at NCEP, the Climate Forecast System, was were forecasting a uh, a La Nina for this winter, but we just didn't really know whether we could trust it because if we look back over the past year, it had missed all the transitions into and out of the, the previous La Nina. So it's that that not not necessarily a a stellar track record that makes it makes it difficult to know how to use these forecasts. I think they're getting better, but I, I still think right now the, the transition. I mean, here we are in February and we have La Nina. And pretty much every model that we look at is is ending this event uh, over the next couple of months. And that can certainly happen, but unfortunately it might not happen. Uh, there still is, is um, a fair amount of uncertainty in that forecast. Well, Mike, this is fascinating stuff. You sound a lot like us as short-term weather forecasters when we talk about and look at the models and our confidences in them. And uh, I know what you do there at CPC it's getting better, and it's in, in increasing value, I think, to this nation and this world. And we thank you for joining us today and looking way out into the future. Uh, you're very welcome. Well, some thunder in February, not common. Uh, I didn't hear any reports of thunder with this latest system, but, boy, <laughs> it sure felt like a spring thunderstorm out there. And, and guys, I, I thought I'd uh, visit a website today that we haven't been to for a little while. It's the Storm Prediction Center. Uh, from NOAA, and I sure spent a lot of time on it yesterday as our moderate risk area evolved into tornado watches and then tornado warnings and actual tornado touchdowns. It's a great way for our listeners to keep track of severe weather episodes that are both forecast and ongoing throughout the country, and one of the interesting things to follow are the actual reports. They're pretty close to real time, and so during a severe weather outbreak, you can see where these latest tornado touchdowns have been and it's amazing how quickly the information gets onto the site. Yeah, oftentimes, Paul, you can get information that's less than an hour old at that site, spc.noaa.gov, by the way. 
uh, very useful, especially on situa- on days when the situation may present a weather threat. It's very probably a good habit, in fact, to uh, to look at that on those days. Craig, I know it's on my list, and I know it's on your list. Yeah, Paul, I was watching yesterday. I was looking at the radar out of Oklahoma City, and at one point they had three mesocyclones, or TVS indicated, with the potential for three supercell thunderstorms to be producing tornadoes. And they had, I think, I believe they did have lead time on that warning in Edmonds in northern uh, Oklahoma City. So they, they did a great job. They were all over it, I think. I wish we they were all that easy to forecast severe weather across the nation. It's a good site. Uh, Storm Prediction Center, spc.noaa.gov. Great show today. Good discussion. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, let's hope the weather quiet downs just a little bit across the whole country. And and warming up is nice, too. That's a wrap for this week's Jet Streaming. Thanks for listening, everybody. For producers Pierre Rudolph and Jim Bickle and sound guy Randy Johnson, I'm Paul Hutner. Keep your ear here to Jet Streaming and keep your weather eyes on the sky.